This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Beautiful and haunting strains of Amazing Grace are appropriate to start this program, which is basically an unexpected break from our summer hiatus to address a matter which we didn't think should wait until fall. The matter in question was a celebration of life, a memorial to a very amazing and memorable person. I'm referring to Franz Senecal Cassing, who sadly left us on June 21st of this year. No doubt a great many of you recall her program, which aired for over 10 years on KDVS. It was titled, It's About You. And I have to immediately cut to some of the words that were expressed at the memorial for Franz. Uh, in this case, the words of Ron Glick, himself a former radio host at KDVS. He and Richard Estes for many years produced the quite excellent Speaking in Tongues. Ron noted that Franz put on a show titled It's About You, wherein you got to talk and she would listen. Said Ron, how could you not like that? And indeed, her program was about giving her guests the floor and letting them have at it, with Franz directing the conversation based on the fact that unusual for most radio hosts, she inevitably would have read the book of the author she was interviewing. I was not aware of the fact until Dr. Andy Jones, another eminent public affairs host, noted that the station still receives books addressed to France after she reached out many years ago to numerous publishers and their agents. I actually have in my hand a copy of Nemesis, subtitled The Last Days of the American Republic by Chalmers Johnson. I'm sure that a copy of this book was sent to the station to facilitate Franz's interview with Chalmers Johnson. We actually have a CD of that interview, and we'll be playing that shortly, at least part of it. 
An author like Chalmers Johnson is the kind of person that should be heard. And unfortunately, in the media environment that we live in in this country, uh, people like him rarely get a platform. The author of Blowback, The Sorrows of Empire, and Nemesis, which was a trilogy written by Chalmers Johnson, is not likely to be discussed on MSNBC. You have to go to places like KDVS, with interviewers like Franz Kossing, or perhaps KZFR in Chico or KVMR in Grass Valley. But if you're listening to this program, you are no doubt well aware of that fact. Franz Kossing, in her choice of people to interview, set example for all of us. And in her personal life, more than anything else, I would say she truly set an example that all of us might do well to follow. She was a bright and cheerful person. Many noted that she might well have been the kindest person they ever knew. She was a highly independent person. And despite the fact that she suffered from primary progressive multiple sclerosis, she never let the disease dominate her outlook on life. Professionally, Franz was the operations manager in a financial services firm and was not someone who, I guess you'd say, ever trained to be a radio person, something we can relate to here at Radio Parallax. As the story goes, which came out during the memorial and I think is worth a moment to review, Franz, who is a French-Canadian from Montreal, first came to the United States when her father took a job as an engineer working on communications satellites in Los Angeles. Franz took quite a shine to California, and after returning to Quebec for college, she moved back to the U.S. and became a naturalized citizen. She lived in several locations in the United States, Miami, San Francisco, Denver, and came back to California after getting her diagnosis of MS. She evidently was living up near Grass Valley when she caught a radio program one night, a program emanating from KDVS. The show in question was allegedly a public affairs program, yet concerned itself with the topic of astrology. No doubt many of you will remember this program. And I would like to interject at this point that um, I got to know the host, and although I have no respect whatsoever for the topic of astrology, I did find him to be a rather engaging individual. At any rate, Franz was motivated to call up the program, and <laughs> I'm not sure exactly how that discussion went, but I suspect it was along the lines of, you can do better. Host Michael Mercury was impressed by Franz and suggested, that, well, you know, you ought to get your own show, which she did. So it was she began commuting down from Grass Valley to participate in a radio program on a student-run radio station. She found that project so engaging, she then moved to Davis. Franz had been hosting that show for several years when we first came aboard back in 2002. About that time, someone suggested that the various public affairs hosts ought to get together, which we did. I remember at that first meeting, Franz arriving with a walker. She'd by that point progressed from needing a cane to two canes to the walker. She eventually would need a wheelchair. And despite her difficulties with mobility, she courageously continued to produce her program at first coming down to the station. At one point in, in a specialized van that required the assistance of various KDVSers to help her. And it's again a tribute to the spirit of a community-based radio station that plenty of help was afforded to France when she needed it. But as things became increasingly difficult, General Manager Ben Johnson arranged to have some upgrades of the 
hardware and software, I believe, at the station, so that she could produce the program at home, which she did for several years, extending her run for that time period. I'm pleased to be able to say that on a few occasions we filled in for her time slot. When the legendary historian Howard Zinn passed away, I was lucky to be able to bring France onto the Insight program to discuss the many times she had that uh, well-known historian on her program. They developed quite a rapport over the years. And we intend to play part of that in our second segment today. She was France Senecal when we first met her. Sometime around 2006, I believe it was, she met and married a wonderful man, Dallas Cassing. Anyone who witnessed uh, Dallas and Franz's romance had to be impressed by its intensity and grace. We are sorry that she finally left us on the 21st of June, but are grateful that we can produce for you some of her work. Let us go then to Franz's interview with Chalmers Johnson about his book, Nemesis, The Last Days of the American Republic. Regardless of who succeeds, George W. Bush, the incumbent president, will have to deal with an emboldened Pentagon, an engorged military-industrial complex, our empire of bases, and a 50-year-old tradition of not revealing to the public what our military establishment costs or the kinds of devastation it can inflict. Good morning and welcome to It's About You, a show where expert guests discuss issues and events in order to assist you in defining your personal ethics and opinions. My name is France and I'll be your host for the next hour. Today's guest has written what Darja Mail and many others call the most important book of the year. It is certainly the best book I've read on this topic, uh, if you can call it a topic, in the past eight years. The book is titled Nemesis, The Last Days of the American Republic, and it's published by Metropolitan Books. The author is the distinguished Chalmers Johnson, who taught for 30 years at the Berkeley and San Diego campuses of the University of California and held endowed chairs in Asian politics at both. From 68 until 72, he served as consultant to the Office of National Estimates at the Central Intelligence Agency. After working and living in Japan for several years, he was chairman of the Academic Advisory Committee for the PBS television series, The Pacific Century, and he played a prominent role in the PBS Frontline front documentary, Losing the War with Japan. Both won Emmy Awards. In 2006, which he appeared in the prize-winning documentary film, which many of you I know have seen, Why We Fight. That's where he issued the wonderful and very, very true quote, what we are risking is the Republic itself. His most recent books are Blowback, The Costs and Consequences of American Empire, Sorrows of Empire, Militarism, Secrecy, and the End of the Republic. Blowback won the 2001 American Book Award of the Before Columbus Foundation 
and Sorrows of Empire won a 2005 gold medal for nonfiction conferred by the Commonwealth Club of California. It is such a tremendous honor to welcome him to the show. Good morning, Professor Johnson. Ms. Gossing, thank you very much. It's a very generous introduction. I barely scratched the surface, but perhaps you could start by, since we are discussing your book, yes. Nemesis, The Last Days of the American Empire, a Republic. Perhaps you could start by telling us what or who is Nemesis. Yes. Nemesis was the ancient Greek goddess of revenge, the uh, punisher of a of a sin, a crime that the Greeks particularly disliked, called hubris. Hubris mm. was overweening pride and arrogance uh, that uh, led to uh, disastrous mistakes. I've called my book Nemesis because it seems to me that this exactly describes the United States, not throughout its entire history, but particularly since the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, mm. when we have begun to... Uh, convince ourselves wrongly that we won the Cold War. Both sides actually lost it. We just, uh, yeah. they lost it first uh, mm. because they were always poorer than we are. But we started to talk about full-spectrum dominance, the lone superpower, the, uh, the ability to dominate the world through military force. This is hubris, if mm. one ever heard of it. Yes. And uh, I called my book uh, Nemesis to suggest that... Uh, she is present in our country, awaiting for her divine mission. Mm. It's, it's a daunting, daunting thought. Uh, what has the 2004 election shown the world about Americans? Well, until the last presidential election, that is, after, between 2000 and 2004, the American public could have argued George Bush's foreign policy mm -hmm. was, after all, his, not necessarily that of the United States. He had not won the presidential election in, uh, in 2000. Uh, that is the popular vote. Yes. He had uh, become president because he was appointed president in a 5-4 to four decision by the Supreme Court. Mm. However, in 2004, this is after Abu Ghraib, after the invasion of Iraq, after the revelation of uh, uh, a uh, commitment to the use of torture and, uh, and a denunciation of the Geneva Accords on the treatment of prisoners of war and mm. civilians in wartime and things of this sort. Uh, nonetheless, uh, George Bush won the election by over three and a half million votes. Now, I realize that there are some uh, contests, mm -hmm. particularly in Ohio, uh, that claim that, that his uh, victory was not as substantial as it appears. But still, it seems to be no doubt that on the overall effect, and certainly in the impression of global public opinion, uh, the American people returned George Bush now with an endorsement. And his wars became ours. His crimes became ours. We were uh, seen to be uh, uh, what we so often seem to have proclaimed, a new Rome, a mm. uh, beyond good and evil, able to do anything we wanted to do, prepared to do it, uninterested in uh, international law or uh, other norms of attempted creation of civilized uh, behavior. Uh, and uh, in that sense, uh, we began to see then as something that's been very serious, the uh, almost total collapse of uh, respect for the United States around the world. Mm. It's something that reminds one of... Uh, of the years of the uh, of the Roman Empire, in which the Romans spoke of the uh, 
that gathering sea of enemies. Mm. Uh, the uh, we begin to see that today uh, as a as the world coalesces quietly, secretly, inchoately, but coalesces to stop uh, this uh, megalomaniacal uh, impulse by the United States. And you have done such. Uh, you've spent your life studying. Um, policy and Americans' influence abroad. Uh, how did you specifically, personally, know that our troops would not be welcomed with open arms in Iraq? Well, I don't know that, that I can claim any great insight there. It seems to me uh, uh, perfectly obvious. That is right. to say, uh, uh, it's, uh, it's a matter of understanding sovereignty, the nation-state mm. system, the organization of the world. Uh, people are not... Uh, welcoming uh, of uh, foreign invaders, uh, foreign uh, dominance. Uh, moreover, the invaders in this case were not people that were invited in mm -hmm. or that we had, that some sort of cooperative arrangement had been made to assist uh, Iraqis or something of this sort. These were 18 to 24-year-old heavily armed uh, professional troops uh, with, uh, that had been deeply indoctrinated with American imperialism. Mm. Uh, and um, and together with a great deal of, in many cases, not so latent racism in our society that has led to uh, devastating costs in terms of uh, Iraqi uh, civilians. It seems to me the answer to the question is simply mm -hmm. to reverse it and ask, uh, what would it be like if uh, I'm a 76-year-old man, if mm. uh, I were living in the United States that had been invaded by another country, and uh, regardless of their... Uh, protestations that they were doing this for my own good, uh, what, would, uh, what would I think of this? Well, I'm fairly certain that uh, uh, my wife and I would discuss it. We would call in our son and tell him, uh, look, we realize you're probably going to get killed doing this, but mm -hmm. uh, for the sake of our own uh, national pride, uh, for the sake of our own self-respect, go out and kill an invader, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, we will uh, live with what happens. And so your son would have become an insurgent. No question. No question. One of the amazing quotes in your book is, racist defenses of imperialism have often been linked to the argument that the imperialists have bestowed some unquestioned benefit, often economic, on mm -hmm. their conquered peoples, even as they pauperize or enslave them. Could you tell us how this applied to us today? Well, it's a very old theme that all imperialists claim to be doing good, uh, to be bringing benefits to uh, other countries. It's a general rule. You don't want to pay attention to what imperialists have to say. You want to hear the people on the receiving end. Again, we have this uh, weird propaganda that has accompanied uh, this uh, preventive war, uh, that is, which is a polite and euphemism mm. for aggression, uh, mm. that... Uh, that we were either uh, defending ourselves against a uh, out-of-control dictator armed with nuclear weapons, uh, or we were uh, uh, liberating a country uh, without being asked to do so and doing it at the point of, a, of, a, of an assault rifle, mm -hmm. uh, or that we are spreading democracy throughout uh, the Middle East. A, uh, uh, my, uh, my mentor in moral philosophy 50 years ago was Hannah Arendt, Mm. used to argue that anyone who ever uses the term democracy in, uh, uh, in a serious manner, in a serious discussion, without going into detail on what one means by it, uh, is, has to be presumed to be a charlatan. Oh, uh, my. And I think we have to presume that of our 
president and his other propagandists today. But certainly we have claimed uh, to be uh, aiding the Iraqis when, in fact, it is, um, uh, it is easy to see through the uh, diverse motives that have stimulated American uh, imperialist aggression in this part of the world, not least of which is oil, but that's certainly mm. not the only aspect of it. Exactly. This is almost a classic example mm. of how uh, spurious the claims of imperialists are, but there's no doubt that today the British to this day have a cottage industry in telling the rest of the world how happy people were who were uh, 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 um, under the thumb of the British Empire. Uh, well, this is simply absurd if you yes. start reading it from the point of view of, uh, of the people of India. Who, exactly. Uh, uh, for over a century, it did not grow a single percentage point. Mm. The worst famines in the late 19th century, the uh, deindustrialization of what in the uh, uh, 17th and 18th centuries was a heavily industrialized uh, uh, textile industry in India, things of this sort, it simply doesn't hold water and mm. deserves always to be exposed. We are talking to Chalmers Johnson, whose last book in the trilogy, The Sorrows of Empire and Blowback, is Nemesis, The Last Days of the American Republic. It's available on Metropolitan Books. Do support your local bookstores. Professor Johnson, you write about a, a devastating part of your book is, and you conclude by saying, the civilization we are in the process of destroying in Iraq is part of our own heritage. Yes. Exactly what were you speaking of there? Well, simply that Mesopotamia, that is in Greek, the uh, land between the two rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates, is uh, quite literally the cradle of civilization uh, as we understand the concept and the history. Uh, mm. It's certainly the cradle of Western civilization, that the, these... Uh, uh, the artifacts of the place uh, go back to uh, uh, well over the 6th century B.C., uh, that we have already done untold damage just uh, through uh, our presence in mm. Iraq. The, the huge American air base at Talil near, uh, near Nasiriya in uh, southern Iraq is located right next door to the ancient Sumerian uh, ziggurat of Ur, uh, and uh, has done considerable damage. We've done considerable damage to it. The Marines, in passing it by, actually wrote their slogan, Semper Fi, with a paint can as a graffiti on the thing. Oh, uh, That kind of thing. No. But uh, more than that, of course, is the absolute scandal of the destruction of the Baghdad Museum, of uh, the burning of the Library of Korans in, uh, in uh, Baghdad, uh, and, and all of these things were in violation of direct orders from CENTCOM, from the Central Command, yes. to uh, General Franks in the field. Uh, uh, a list of places to be protected, number two on the list. Number one was the Central Bank of Iraq. Number two was the museum. The place he actually did save, I think, was about number 16, the Ministry of Oil. Mm. Uh, the, uh, these are in violation of numerous international laws of, the, of war, on uh, the responsibility of an occupying power to protect such artifacts, things of this sort, uh, our indifference to this, the mm. kinds of, uh, of uh, stand-up comic shows that one got from Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld about stuff happens and uh, he couldn't believe there were that many vases in Iraq and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. uh, this um, 
will come back to haunt us. The rest of the world knows about this. The museum itself was a uh, was actually created by Gertrude Bell, one of the founders of Iraq, a British imperialist in the 1920s. Uh, it was widely regarded as uh, the most valuable single such uh, institution in the Middle East. It was a catastrophe. Reported, not very well reported in the United States, uh, and certainly not much in the way of follow-up. Among the things that are certainly not followed up are the number of uh, priceless objects, cuneiform yes. tablets and things of this sort, that are found almost every day by U.S. Customs officials mm. in dealing with uh, American GIs returning from Iraq. And that's, that's our civilization's uh, records, basically. Exactly. No question. And they're gone. Yes. Oh, for profit, for profit. <laughs> um, did Abu Ghraib surprise you, Professor Johnson? It didn't. I have to say I still was surprised by the absolute depravity of it all. Mm. Uh, the thing that also, it seems to me, must be stressed is the... Uh, the skill with which the military high command and the Pentagon covered up who was actually responsible. Mm. Uh, in fact, this reverberates through the armed forces these days in that uh, ordinary enlisted men in the armed forces have certainly discovered that they will be held responsible for illegal orders, but officers will go free. Uh, and that this has made them very, very sensitive to uh, the possibility of illegal orders. It probably is a check on a degree of military adventurism. The other thing, of course, is simply the technological foundations of this, namely that these uh, crazy GIs were photographing each other in uh, outrageous act, usually smiling broadly. Of course. Uh, and uh, saving these things on uh, computer disks and circulating them and things of this sort, it's as shameful a thing as has happened to the armed forces in modern, well, since Milai, that's the fact, though, that we come down to it without anybody being held responsible in the way of the high command. After General Takuba's remarkable and courageous report, I certainly agree with Seymour Hersh's reporting on that, it is still just astonishing that so little has been done and that just yesterday in, uh, in headlines in the New York Times, the president has now approved new so-called yes. en enhanced interrogation techniques for the CIA that amount to torture. Oh. I mean, that is, uh, uh, euphemisms go only so far yes. uh, when uh, we know exactly what you're talking about. Moreover, what the Geneva Conventions, the Convention Against Torture, it's a capital offense in the United mm. States for, uh, under our current national law, for a, uh, uh, a prisoner to be tortured and then die in the hands of the torturer which I assure you happens quite often in our prisons today. You describe renditions. Yes. And CIA, for whom you worked for a while. Well, I was a consultant. Perhaps you could speak of the extent and significance of the CIA renditions. Give well, some of the examples in your book and also comment on Bush's making. It was presented as if he was urging his troops to follow, or, or the CIA to follow uh, Geneva Convention. Well, yes, it's such evidence of, uh, of uh, criminal knowledge, that yes. is, the attempt to cover these things up. Uh, it is, I mean, in the broadest sense, it's a good illustration of the enormous dangers of the secrecy surrounding the Central Intelligence Agency. Everything about it is secret, including its budget. Uh, it's not to say that we don't have a pretty good idea of yeah. how big it is, 
but nonetheless, it is formally secret, and it has slowly turned this organization into a private army of the presidents. It's, uh, these are Praetorian guards again, as if you were back mm-hmm. in the time of uh, Caligula. There's no uh, oversight. There is no check on what they do. Uh, until the church committee hearings of the late 70s, there was quite literally no oversight of any sort. Since that time, there has been a congressional a set of congressional committees that are supposed to, uh, to uh, oversee what the CIA does, but this is farcical. It simply uh, doesn't work. When, uh, when Congressman uh, uh, Charlie Wilson became chairman of the, of the House Intelligence Oversight Committee in the, uh, in the late 1980s, he rather famously called the agency to say, uh, the, uh, uh, the fox now lives in the hen house, uh, do anything yes. you want to. Right. Uh, that was called oversight. We hope that that program will be available in its entirety uh, on the archives at KDVS or elsewhere. We're not sure. We will make some inquiries. We have a great deal more ground to cover today, but let us take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.